This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. This is Murder, She Told. True crime stories from Maine, New England, and small-town USA. I'm Kristen Zevey. You can connect with me at MurderSheTold.com or on Instagram at MurderSheToldPodcast. Eddie and Ruthie had three teenagers, and they all lived together in their modest home on Beach Ridge Road in small-town York, Maine. Their kids, Sandy, who was the oldest, Carl and Kathy were all closing in on their 18th birthdays when a surprise came along. In 1967, Ruth gave birth to Kimberly Sue Morse, the oops baby. Although Kim was unexpected, she was loved from the moment she opened her eyes, being doted on by her parents and all her older siblings. Beach Ridge Road was a bastion of family, with cousins, aunts, and uncles just a short walk or bike ride away. Kim was a beautiful child. A photo of four-year-old Kimmy showcased beautiful blonde locks, blue eyes, long eyelashes, and a winsome gapped-tooth grin. People were enamored with her. One of her favorite toys as a child was a jumping rocking horse, and it suited her. She was a bundle of energy and she would bounce around on the toy for hours, entertaining herself and others. This is her sister, Sandy. And when I go through the pictures and things, I've got pictures of us dressing her up. And I mean, she was our little baby doll, you know, we, my other sister, Kathy and, and I, and we would just, uh, like I say, she, we spent a lot of the time with her. From a young age, Kim was daddy's little girl. He later became her chauffeur, driving her around with her friends wherever she wanted to go. He kept a book with all the names of her friends and their contact information to keep tabs on where she was at and who she was spending time with. Kim loved to entertain and to shock people in the most fun-loving and silly ways. But what was fun-loving to her could be quite shocking to others. One time, she terrified her dad. She probably wasn't only a couple years old. Kim was such a prankster anyways, and always wanting to involve us all into her games. And so my dad was frantic, couldn't not find her. He called me, and I don't think I was even living at home at the time, but I mean, the whole neighborhood was out looking for her. We looked for her inside, outside, everything. And then dad just happened to walk by the dryer and heard this little voice saying, can't find me, can't find me and opened the dryer, and there she was, hiding inside of it. And after that, Dad took up, drilled a padlock and locked the dryer, so we all had to find a key to, to use the dryer after that. But she would do little things like that at a very young age, and she just was a clown, just was a clown. Anything to attention, I guess, I don't know. That, that was my sister. She knew how to get your attention, and um, just to play her games. Kim was in between generations. As she grew up, 
Her older siblings acted as surrogate parents. Sandy remembered meeting with Kim's teachers on occasion and keeping tabs on her schoolwork. And once she was in her teens, she was surrounded by the young children of the next generation. The children loved their Aunt Kim just as much as she loved them. Her older sister Sandy called her the Pied Piper. The new litter of rugrats would follow her around and she would take them on adventures. Sandy's favorite photo of all time is a picture of Kim teaching her young son how to properly give the finger to the camera, which is the perfect summation of her personality. Kim would dress up all the kids and don a costume herself. She loved dressing up, something that she would enjoy for the rest of her life. Kim wasn't very athletic or into sports as a kid. She also didn't play any instruments. She was too busy on adventures. She loved people, a true extrovert, and she loved trying new things, which is a surprising trait because her parents were both homebodies who rarely took a vacation or even left the state. As Sandy humorously quipped, why leave Maine? A vacation is a day off in the backyard. In 1985, Kim graduated from York High School. Her yearbook quote read, you've got to make the most of every day because it may all be gone before you know it. Kim remained in York for the next 10 years and she had a ball. Kim got into health and fitness as she grew older. She spent a lot of time in the gym and she'd stay toned doing aerobics working out with Jane Fonda. She got abs. She got into bodybuilding. She was a very healthy eater and an early riser. She was driven. She picked up golf and snow skiing. It was the 80s, and it was all about the blondest hair and the bronzest bod. Her hair was rising to new heights and her bangs to new lengths. She loved the warm weather and would tan at the tanning booth, at the beach, or at the pool. She traveled frequently, taking short weekend trips a drive away and sometimes further afield to Florida or St. Croix in the U.S. Virgin Islands, where she stayed for quite some time. She got a couple of part-time jobs there, one as a waitress and another as a painter. She visited Hawaii and was always in search of an endless summer. It was always a lot of fun. Kim would get dressed up and we would meet up, dance all night, and just have a really good time. That was Kim's cousin, Nancy. She and Kim would get glitzed up and party up and down the main coast. They would hit places like Aqua Lounge, where Nancy worked, and Bogarts in York Beach. Sometimes they would cross state lines and hit up Spin in Portsmouth or Scooters. But they were always in search of something bigger and better. They would go to Bananas or Norton's, a music venue in Kittery where they would dance and drink and shoot pool, though Nancy admits they were terrible at the game. Sometimes they might even hit up Nick's nightclub on Nickel Beer Night where they would also sometimes skinny dip across the way from the bar in a pool owned by the same folks. Though Kim and Nancy would drink, Kim didn't drink to excess. She didn't need any liquid courage to get the most out of her nights out. She was the life of the party. She would enter bikini contests, like, you know, Captain Nick's, they used to, I think they had a bikini contest, and she won. She went out there and she made her own bikini. It was around the 4th of July. And she put some rhinestones up and down her legs. And she just had fun with it. You know, it wasn't, I don't think she ever really took anything too seriously in life. You know, she just always had a good attitude. And she looked at it like it was just a lot of fun to get dressed up and go dancing and kind of walk out there and strut her stuff. And she just had a great big smile and 
People loved her. She was on vacation, I thought, in Florida. She was down there on vacation, had flown down there, and she was walking by a bar that said beauty contest. So she walks into the bar and she registers for the beauty contest. And when it was her turn to go up there, she walks across the stage, moons the crowd, gets first place and wins a lawn chair. She said she couldn't bring it home. She was hoping for some money so that she could spend more money while she was there. And she ends up getting this stupid lawn chair. But that was my sister. She would do anything to to rouse the crowd or get the crowd going. Kim worked around the York area in a variety of jobs. She worked as a waitress at Jackie Bevins. Yes, that Jackie Bevins, a local restaurant in Perkins Cove near Agunquit Beach. She worked in the cafeteria at York Hospital and would volunteer as a candy striper. She drove limos for a friend's business. and She did hotel work as a chambermaid, helping with room turnover. All of her jobs had one thing in common. They were physical, and they required her to interact with people. Kim loved everyone, including the unusual and the eccentric. She just seemed to have such an eclectic group of people around her. Anybody that most people might not even talk to, Kim would befriend them. You know, she was just that kind of person. She could become friends with anybody. If I look at Kim's life as a whole, she just had more people in her life than I ever would have this one and that one and been here and there. And and again, I don't know of anybody that disliked my sister. Every place I've ever been, if I, she worked at York Hospital and then I went in and worked at York Hospital, they would come up to me and just tell me how much they loved my sister. My neighbor down the street, I didn't even know he, she would stop and talk to him. He was an older gentleman. If he was out in the yard doing some yard work, he told me after she passed away that she never went by his house if he was out without stopping to say hello. She always made time for people. She had no problem talking to old people, young people, kids. Didn't matter who they were, what they looked like, didn't matter their problems. But when you put it together and you look at all the people that that she knew and in the short time that she lived, it's just beyond me. It blows me away, this kind of person she was. It just says a lot about her. And that penchant for shocking people, well, that followed her into her adulthood. My son, Jonathan, went into the Marines out of high school. Kim and I traveled down to Camp Lejeune to go to his graduation. So the day of graduation, here's my sister. You have to kind of picture this as my sister is this beautiful looking girl going on to base with thousands of guys, you know, young Marines that are just going through graduation. So John is introducing us to his bunkmate and we turned around and looked. And there is Kim with a fake pair of ugly teeth, you know, the kind that you, the wax teeth with all the black and the buck teeth looking thing. Evidently, she brought them for the trip because she figured people were going to be looking at her down there on base. She made sure she brought them with her. She put them in her mouth and turned around and smiled as he was introducing us to people. And the most embarrassing part about the whole thing was this poor kid that was John's bunkmate. His mother had the same looking teeth, and it was really embarrassing. We have no idea she was going to pull off something like this. So she wore these ugly teeth the rest of the time that we were down there. It was just to scare off people of what it was. It was the shock of it all. That's what she did. She would think up things to shock you. 
When you took Kim somewhere, you had to be careful. One time, a friend of Kim's came over to the house, changed into some of Kim's clothes, and left her own clothes in Kim's room. She was beside herself that her parents let it happen, but she decided to roll with the punches and make a joke out of it. She memorialized it with a photo that captured her holding up the lace panties, and she inscribed the back of the print with this timeless quote, Mary Jo's used undies. You can see that photo on the blog at MurderSheTold.com. Kim loved dressing up. She loved shoes. She would even make her own clothes. And she had a very eclectic sense of style. She loved to shop at thrift stores and this New England treasure. One of the favorite places that she would go to would be Christmas tree shop. Now, you can't find any more of a junk store than that Christmas tree shop. And a lot of the things in her apartment from the Christmas tree shop. And she'd bring mother home, maybe a special candle. Oh, mom, look what I got a bargain at the Christmas tree shop. Kim had gotten to know someone from Providence, Rhode Island, that said that while she was making okay money up and down the coast of southern Maine, she was missing out on the chance at making real money as a dancer at a strip club. So as Kim was nearing her 30th birthday in 1997, she decided to get breast implants and started dancing at the Foxy Lady near downtown Providence. She told me she had been you know, traveling around, she'd entered a few contests here and there for fun, and she'd made, actually made some pretty good money, enough money to travel. And I remember she told me that there was a woman who was working at the Foxy Lady, and she really talked Kim into it. She said, Kim, you know, you're just making peanuts here, and, you know, going to these clubs and just doing these little, you know, contests for fun and making $500 here. And she said, you can come to the Foxy Lady, and you'll make a ton of money. And so... I remember came home and told me that she was working at the Foxy Lady. She got a job there and she really liked it. She liked mostly the part about dressing up because she was more of a, a showman than anything else. You know, you would start the whole evening off, I guess, decked out in these beautiful gowns and, and music like the dance clubs that we like. So she seemed to really like it in the beginning. I think she liked the other girls that she met. And I think she definitely liked the money because, um, again, the money, she could travel, you know, and that's what she loved to do. She loved to travel and just enjoy life. She stayed with some friends that she made in Providence until she got her own apartment in North Providence, a 15-minute drive from the club. She took her black Mazda Miata with her and started to forge a new and exciting life for herself there. Her apartment was a one-bedroom, one-bath basement unit in a three-floor condo building called Brick Manor Condominiums. As an adult, Kim was very clean and organized. Her place was spick and span. And for the most part, she lived alone. Kim didn't work all the time. The money was good, and she only worked a few nights a week and would spend a lot of her time back home in York on the weekends with her friends and family. She continued to travel, going to Hawaii and South Beach. She dated a couple of guys, good-looking bodybuilder types. Around this time, she started taking a real interest in young Heather Marquis, a five-year-old girl who lived just down the street from her parents. She was the daughter of one of Kim's friends who had moved to Florida, leaving her in New York to be raised by her grandmother. Heather loved Kim, and Kim would come home on the weekends to take her on adventures. Kim was like a second mother to Heather. She was literally my role model. I remember being a little kid and just looking up to her and like she'd just be like brushing her teeth. And I'm just like, 
I wish I could spend every single second with you. She was warm. She was kind. She was thoughtful. She was just an amazing person to be around. We went on a lot of trips like you would with any typical kid. But for me, the most impactful ones were always just spending time with her, like being funny and playing with her stuff, like her wigs and just playing with them and taking pictures and having just fun in general. At one point, Heather was facing potentially being turned over to foster care, and Kim offered to officially adopt her if it came to that point. In Providence, she started to make a new network of friends, and one of them was Becky, another dancer at Foxy's. Becky was taking classes at the Warwick Academy of Beauty Culture, an esthetician school, and Kim was starting to look towards the future, so she decided to take classes there as well. Becky welcomed an accountability buddy. She said that Kim was always on time. Her, a little later. Some of the other friends that she made were regular patrons at the club, and a few of them were quite taken with Kim. Some of them paid some of her bills. Some of them bought her expensive gifts, like a computer or a camera. One of them even bought her a Jeep, free and clear in Kim's name. In the summer of 1999, after a couple years in Providence, Kim got some devastating news. Her father, who she dearly loved, passed away from COPD, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, a lung disease similar to emphysema. After the burial service, she made plans to go with her sister Sandy on a road trip to see their other sister, Kathy, in Ohio. In the fall, Sandy came down to pick up Kim from Providence. Kim showed Sandy her apartment and the foxy lady and took her all around town. The bouncers from Foxy Lady walked all the girls to their cars, and they would not let any person take her home. Then once she was in the car, we left the Foxy Lady, and they went to her apartment from there. And she said, look, look at all the corners I have to go around. I check my mirror constantly to make sure no one's following me. And that's what she would do. She knew enough to do all of that. She was very cautious about all of that and um, felt comfortable with those things that she did, let alone somebody was in her apartment, you know. That's what made me feel better after I'd been there and seen everything and seen the security that they had down at the Foxy Lady for these girls. After a day or so in Providence, they got on the road. During that trip, Kim's phone was blowing up with calls from her ex-boyfriend, Anthony Penny. They had broken up, but he had not moved on and they were having constant and difficult conversations. That Christmas, she came home and spent two or three weeks with her family in York before returning to Providence for the last time. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. It was Tuesday, January 18th, 2000, and Kim spoke to her sister on the phone, letting her know she would be home on Friday to have a joint birthday celebration with Sandy. She went to work for her shift at the club and got off around 1.45 a.m. She checked out with a valet, 
a bouncer walked her to her car and she drove home. She pulled into the parking lot and let herself into the plain red brick condo building. The click of her heels followed her as she walked. She opened the front door and then walked down a few stairs to the lower level. She passed the laundry room and came to unit 28. The door to Kim's apartment was already unlocked. As soon as she stepped into her kitchen, someone attacked her, catching her completely off guard, and they cut her throat. She didn't even have a chance to struggle. Kimberly Morse bled to death on the floor of her kitchen. Her friend Becky must have called 10 times that day, starting that morning around 8 or 9 a.m., not knowing what happened to Kim. Kim was never late to class. Plus, Becky needed her to pick up something on the way to school. They had run out of supplies, and the teacher wanted to know if Kim could grab them at the store. It wasn't until 5.30 p.m. on Wednesday that the world learned what happened to her. Around 5 p.m., the fire alarm in her apartment went off, the sight and smell of smoke seeping out from under her apartment door. A neighbor called 911, and firefighters responded right away. When they arrived, her unit was filled with smoke, and they crawled to the bathroom where they discovered flames coming from the bathtub. Kim's naked body was laid face up in the tub, draped with towels that covered her torso and legs, doused with gasoline, and set on fire. They extinguished the blaze before it could spread to any other apartment. No other units were damaged. Once the smoke had cleared, they discovered the murder scene before them and called police. North Providence police responded right away and started to analyze the crime scene. Captain Paul Marino entered the basement apartment, and he immediately noticed the pool of blood on the kitchen floor. I can only imagine the horror of the firefighters when they learned what they'd been crawling through to make it to the bathroom. They discovered Kim's keys and her gloves sitting on the kitchen counter, and they theorized that she only had enough time to remove her gloves and drop her keys before being attacked. They discovered cuts in her winter coat, suggesting that she hadn't even had time to remove it after she walked in. After she dropped to the ground, she was stabbed several more times on the kitchen floor. I was told by Captain Marino that she died instantly. She didn't suffer. I mean, he got her in the juggler vein and she died instantly. So, um, yeah, he wanted me to be thankful for that part of it. But in some of his comments, it was the worst case that he'd ever, ever been a part of. The nightmares that the poor police officer had. And I'm grateful that I didn't uh, have to identify the body and all that. But she um, said it was a horrific, horrific scene. There was no sign of forced entry, so they believed that the killer had a key. It's possible she knew him. They believed that the killer had struck in the middle of the night but they never explained the 15-hour gap of time between 2 a.m. and 5 p.m. What was going on in that unit during those 15 hours? Did the killer stay with her, or did he leave the complex and return later? They dusted for fingerprints, they took blood samples, and they discovered that there were some things missing from her unit. A safe containing cash, her computer, jewelry, a camera, a VHS camcorder, and a stuffed white teddy bear. They logged over a hundred pieces of evidence for their records, but unfortunately, none of those were the murder weapon. They found the place to be meticulously organized and neat. Some clothes were laid out, as though she was going on a trip. 
She was planning to head home to York on Friday, but Tuesday does seem early to pack. They canvassed the other residents and the neighborhood, but the only thing they reported to have learned was that a neighbor heard a thumping noise that night, but no scream. He muted his television set for a moment and listened, and then heard something that sounded like footsteps. Lieutenant Thomas Jones said, It was personal. Her body was dragged to the bathroom and placed inside the tub. Her clothes were taken off of her, and she was then set on fire. The York Police Department took the responsibility of notifying the family. Sandy remembered that she was with her mother when they knocked on the door in the middle of the night and broke the news. The medical examiner's office would later conduct an autopsy, and they too contacted the family, asking for someone to come down to Providence to identify the body. Her cousin Nancy's father ended up going on the family's behalf. Heather learned on Friday of Kim's death. I actually was going down to see her. She was supposed to be there that day that her family was notified. So I came over and believe it was Sandy who told me that Kim was gone. (laughs) That was not the best way to find out, (laughs) to be honest, because you're going down thinking this person's going to be here. It's going to be a great day. And then they're just gone. About a week later, on Monday, January 24th, 2000, there were visiting hours at Lucas and Eaton Funeral Home in York. And the following day, on Tuesday, they held a service at her childhood church, York Street Baptist. Captain Marino and some of the detectives came because some of the people from Rhode Island came up and they were looking to see who would come to the funeral. And they were given a room to stop some people and bring in for questioning. And, And they questioned some of the attendees in the side room. They even went through Kim's childhood room at her parents' house. Media started to cover the case, and the chief of the North Providence Police Department said that all of his detectives were assigned to the case and were conducting interviews. Kim knew a lot of people, so they had their work cut out for them. A month or two after the funeral, one of Kim's exes, Tom Shahinian, came up and asked if Sandy could show him Kim's gravesite. And so I took him over there, and he looked down at her marker. He says, she lied to me. She was older than me. (laughs) Here he was. It was just like a shocker for him. She never told her age. Even in death, Kim's personality lived on. Kim was only a month away from finishing her studies, and she and Becky were some of the oldest dancers at Foxy's, and they were looking to move on. Kim was getting ready to travel to Florida to spend time with her close friend, Julie Pratt, who had helped line her up with a job there. If things went well, She was planning to move, and if she had just a couple more months, she would have left Providence, and perhaps the danger lurking there, behind her. Sandy reflected on her father's death the previous year. She felt relief that her dad had passed before Kim. It would have devastated him to see his daughter brutally murdered. He was her protector. I asked Sandy how her mother coped with Kim's death. My mother shut down. She held it all inside. She shut down. She was just beside herself. She just shut down. We had to send her home from the funeral. She almost collapsed. I tried to be protective of my mother at that point, but my mom had had heart attacks um, in the past prior to this. And um, so it was just really concerned for my mom's health. And over the months after that, one of the things that 
I found interesting and odd at the same time was that my mom would watch the murder mystery type shows and and because they got solved, you know, some of those cases were solved. And I guess it gave her some hope in that by watching them and seeing other cases solved that maybe Kim's would have been solved. But maybe she's trying just trying to understand why people do what they do, I guess. As the days ticked on without answers, detectives turned to the FBI for help. They provided the details of the murder to criminal profilers, hoping that a fresh look would help prioritize and focus efforts. They reached out to a psychic, who provided a detailed analysis of the crime scene and gave them some new leads to explore. Unsolved Mysteries expressed some interest in the case, but I don't believe they ended up producing a segment on Kim. With so many people in Kim's life, the best that the police could do was narrow it down to about 15 potential suspects. In May, four months after the murder, Kathy and Sandy traveled to North Providence to announce a hefty reward of $20,000. The money was raised by friends of Kim's family and the Carol Sund Carrington Foundation. No one ever claimed that money. Kim's killer remains free. Other than a tip in 2014 that led investigators to Michigan, there have been almost no new public developments on the case. In 2019, a cold case unit in the Pawtucket Police Department created a pack of playing cards highlighting 52 unsolved homicide and missing persons cases. Kim was featured as the Seven of Clubs, describing her as being viciously attacked in her home. In an interview conducted right around the time the cards were released, Lieutenant Thomas Jones said that they have the DNA of the person they believe killed Kim, but there hasn't been a match yet. He added, it's only a matter of time before we come knocking. So when you think you got away with it, think again. Though there has been no official suspect named in the case, it hasn't stopped friends and family from developing their own theories. Sandy recalled that Kim had bought locks for her bedroom door and that she wanted to change the locks to her apartment. When she asked why, Kim told her that she was afraid of her ex-boyfriend, Anthony Penny. Kim also told her Anthony tried to break the door down while her friend was living with her. This is the same man who was calling and hanging up when Kim was on her road trip with Sandy. And Kim told Sandy that, during their tumultuous breakup, Anthony told Kim menacingly, Women don't break up with me. I break up with them. Sandy thinks that Anthony, a bodybuilder himself, would have the strength to overpower Kim, who was no slouch. The timing of their breakup at the end of 1999 lines up with the timeline of her murder, too. Around that same time, there was a ring of um, actually one of Anthony's friends or what it was had been charged with steroids, doing something with steroids, and um, wondered if um, they thought they were close to solving the case at that point, thinking that this guy was going to squeal on Anthony because they felt that he was doing steroids. That's why I keep leaning toward it being Anthony Penny, because he would have been strong enough, if he, if he was, especially if he was on steroids. He would have been had the strength to grab her. And... She believed that Kim's ex-boyfriend killed her because she said that they were fighting so much on the telephone for hours. She said that Kim told him that she was done with him, and he told her that nobody is done with him. 
and she told me that she was afraid Anthony was going to break in. Apparently, Sandy, her sister, said that he had tried to break into her place before. Captain Marino, he had said that this case was his white whale. He had a picture of Kim up in his office, and he really wanted, and he still wants to, because I spoke to him recently, he still really wants to see this case solved. And back then, I think he told me he believed that it was her ex-boyfriend. Other friends of Kim's wondered about a man that lived in the apartment community, an older guy that seemed to follow her around, even showing up in the parking lot at work. She was friendly with him at first, but she grew increasingly wary. He may have even worked for the landlord, giving him access to her apartment. Becky recalled a couple that lived with Kim in 1999 for about a month. Though they were in a relationship, the man became infatuated with Kim. She got a chilling vibe from him, and since they had a key to Kim's place, perhaps he could have returned after being scorned. Becky also remembered picking up a voicemail from Kim just a day or two before her murder of Kim complaining of a road rage incident. Kim left a long voicemail and was shook by the incident. Though no one was hurt and no one got out of their car, it was still a strange coincidence. The last theory that we heard was some speculation about those regular patrons at the club who were showering her with expensive gifts. Could they have been wanting more? Or wanting Kim to themselves? Perhaps Kim refused. It's hard for Kim's family and friends to understand how someone could take her life. She had no enemies. She showed love to so many people and touched so many lives. This is Heather. If you got to spend just 10 minutes with her, you would understand what I'm talking about. Like She was just a nice, genuine person, just filled with life. She, she was basically like the sun. Like, you just wanted to be around it just to feel warm, you know? And person who can do that to a person like that should not be on the streets. Police officers should be concerned that someone like that is still out on the loose and who knows what they're still doing. We have not closed that chapter of our lives yet and we are waiting. We are still waiting to close that chapter of our lives and the only way we're going to be able to do it is when that guy is found. Kim's killer, likely one of the men on the police radar, is still free. It's been 22 years since Kim's death. How many others has he harmed? Kim came from a very loving family, a very kind family. And because of that, she was a kind and loving person. And I just wish a lot of people don't judge what she used to do as a job working for Foxy's and think that they can pin her character. She was a genuine nice person. She was warm and loving. And if you ever needed help, she was there to lend you a hand. And I just hope that people can be kind and not be rude um, when they start, you know, reading this and when they start to think about her case, that they really listen to what we have to say about her character and not what she did for a job. Those simple words are things that Heather learned from Kim. She still asks herself, what would Kim do? I still think... How can I be more like her? How can I give back to people? How can I be kinder to people? She really meant a lot to me. And to this day, she still does. Her life was always interesting. You have to look at where she did and what she did in the short time that she lived on this earth. 
business like I've got pictures of Hawaii um, parasailing. I've got pictures of her kissing dolphin. I mean, she'd been to St. Croix and lived down there. She was in Florida with Julie. She was mountain climbing. She was bike riding. She was an adventurer. She lived life and lived it to the fullest. The short time that she had, even in high school and stuff, she kept herself busy with her friends and doing things. But um, yeah, she lived a pretty full life in a short period of time. She passed away and she's 32 and she'd seen a lot, done a lot, been around a lot of people. She was an honest person. She was a loving person. And she went out of her way to take care of me in ways that no one else could. And after she was gone, it was definitely like this big hole that just no one else could fill. And eventually, I just realized I will always miss her, but I will always love her. And I'll always cherish what she did for me. And I just have to keep going, keep going forward and realize what, you know, what I learned from her at a young age. If you have any information about the murder of Kim Morse, I encourage you to contact the North Providence Police Department at 401-231-4533. I want to thank you so much for listening. I'm so grateful that you chose to tune in, and I couldn't be here without you. Thank you. If you want to support the show, there's a link in the show notes with options. Telling a friend about the show or leaving a review are some of the best ways to support an indie podcast. A detailed source listing can be found on the website at MurderSheTold.com. A very special thanks to Sandy, Heather, and Nancy for sharing their memories with me and trusting me with Kim's story. Additional thanks to Becky and to Elizabeth for reaching out about this case. Special thanks to Byron Willis for his research and writing support. If you have a story suggestion or a correction, feel free to reach out at hello at murdershetold.com. My only hope is that I've honored your stories by keeping the names of your family and friends alive. I'm Kristen Seavey, and this is Murder She Told. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.